Yes, good morning and welcome to Milton Keynes. It's my pleasure to open the workshop on future directions in multimedia knowledge management. And I'll give a small introduction as to what the MMKM network is and a very small introduction as to what happens today and also about the future of the multimedia knowledge management network. Now, the multimedia knowledge management network is a research network, and we have a host of research that is associated to all sorts of multimedia. That is multimedia analysis, automated analysis. Uh, that is semantic organization of multimedia. That covers the aspect of how to index multimedia, um, how to uh, find out what users are, are looking for when they search for multimedia, how to retrieve that for the user, how to uh, summarize, how to present, or how to personalize multimedia uh, in all aspects of life for, for uh, consumers, uh, for your research, for learning, um, all these aspects, um, for entertainment as well. Uh, th there is other aspects in, in multimedia knowledge management research that covers the capitalization um, of, of multimedia and to ev evaluate uh, how well the research is doing that, that we do with uh, that kind of things. Now, there is a, a host of domains that are relevant uh, to multimedia knowledge management. Um, and one of them, for example, is information retrieval, you know, how, how to build search engines for multimedia, uh, multimedia databases, um, the, the generation of multimedia, computer vision, uh, speech recognition, human-computer interaction, um, digital libraries, then how do multimedia and the arts, how do they interact, uh, social media, how are multimedia um, used in, in, in social networks and so on. So that's all part and parcel, uh, and in that sense, um, multimedia knowledge management is a broad church. Uh, it's, uh, it covers a wide area of subjects, and it covers a wide area of research. Now, the end and objective of uh, the current network is to promote communication, uh, to set up workshops like the workshop today, uh, to maintain an email list, uh, to create and maintain resources on the web for researchers to share, uh, to assist training of, of new researchers, to send them to conferences, to uh, help send students to, to summer schools, uh, to, dissem to disseminate research activities, um, and also to think about the future in the sense of developing uh, a research roadmap, a piece of text that covers what is the current state of the art um, of multimedia knowledge management, and how is that likely to develop in the future? Um, the network is currently funded by uh, EPSRC, that's a national funding body in the UK, and hence the Multimedia Knowledge Management Network has a distinct UK focus, so uh, looks primarily at UK research rather than uh, the worldwide research. Uh, but of course, a lot of the UK research is embedded, involved uh, in European research, and in that respect, the, the roadmap uh, also covers a lot of uh, projects that are uh, currently being funded on European level. Now, this network um, has been supported for three and a half years, and the support will end tomorrow. 
um, of, of, of the current network. This is the EPSSC support. Uh, but there is good news, um, which I'll present in, uh, in five, six slides to come. Uh, there is a kind of, there's a continuation uh, with even more money uh, around the corner. Now, the Multimedia Knowledge Management Network is open to new members. Uh, you're more than welcome to join the email list on www.mmkm.org. Uh, and those of you who are here, you probably are already on, on the email list. But if you think that colleagues might benefit from being part of that, um, everyone is welcome to, to join. Research groups are also welcome to join. So, so far, we have spent uh, 36 pounds. Uh, we've spent that in support of junior researchers traveling to conferences, presenting papers, uh, traveling to summer schools, um, doing lab exchanges. Um, we've also supported nine workshops, either by paying for the cost of the workshops um, or by supporting the workshops in part. And here is a, is a list of previous workshops, um, starting with a kickoff workshop in, in London three and a half years ago until uh, the workshop, the very workshop today. And we've supported uh, three summer schools in the past, uh, information retrieval, the European Summer School of Information Retrieval and a summer school on multimedia semantics. Now, I've mentioned the roadmap before. Um, so far, the roadmap has identified and uh, collected in a roundabout uh, 80, 90 pages uh, document the current state of the art of UK and uh, European research in multimedia knowledge management. And we already have an initial draft of future trends and activities. The next step, um, what's happening to, to this roadmap, is that uh, I will send out um, a call for comments and a call for additional contributions to the initial draft of the future trends and activities. And once that next iteration has passed, uh, we will finalize um, a team of people working on the, on the roadmap of around about 10 researchers. will finalize uh, the roadmap with recommendations for sponsors uh, and research funders. So I expect to see an email in the next few days uh, asking you to contribute uh, to, to, this, to the future directions uh, section in this roadmap um, and maybe correct some of the trends that we, we've so far written into that, if you see it differently or if you have other observations. Now, today we've got a fantastic program. I'm really happy to have seven uh, fantastic speakers here who all individually talk on different aspects of, uh, the, of multimedia knowledge management, um, on how it relates to the arts and information retrieval, multimedia databases, uh, social media, uh, semantic web, and industrial um, applications of, uh, of that, uh, and also multimedia, um, multimodal, I should say, human-computer interaction. And in the end of the day, we'll have a panel and everyone can have the assay and, um, and discuss with, with the speakers and, at length. 
Now, before I hand over to start the first uh, official session, I, I would like to announce that uh, th there is funding from a network of excellence called PETA Media through Queen Mary, University of London, and uh, Professor Ebrul Itzquerdo, who is the principal investigator here. Uh, there is funding to the tune of uh, around about 200,000 euro for the next three and a half years to support activities as we've done before. Um, and there is slightly, there are slightly smaller uh, changes in the, in the focus. Uh, one of the changes in the focus will be that uh, lab exchanges are of a longer duration are welcome and supported. And the idea is that the MCAM network will be able to support uh, trips of three to nine months for junior researchers that are PhD students and postdocs, and uh, shorter trips for more senior researchers. Uh, but all the rest of the support will be very similar. Uh, junior researchers will be encouraged to uh, go and visit conferences and summer schools, and there is also an element of workshop support in the new regime of funding. All the activities uh, at least need one MMS, MM, I should say, MMKM uh, component. Uh, so there's a typo here on the page. Um, so, uh, the, so, so what the network cannot do is fund a researcher from Stanford, visit MIT, uh, but if you want to if you want someone from Stanford to visit your lab, um, then the MMKM network uh, will be happy to support any MMKM lab. Uh, and uh, if someone from our labs uh, wants to visit any place in the world, again, there is uh, money for that. So I apologize for the typos here. It should really read uh, MMKM, of course. Uh, now, how to apply? Um, normally, what we expect to be happening, um, and we'll set up the, the procedures in, in the next few weeks, um, you, you ought to be contacting us through the mmkm.org website, um, and then funding applications will be collected and then evaluated roughly once per month by the steering committee, and that's uh, eight people from different universities around the country, and then there will be a decision made and communicated back to the applicant. Now, that's, that's all I wanted to say about the MMKM network, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you're all looking forward uh, to, uh, to the next, to the first talk of this, this morning. And I asked Dawei Song, Dr. Dawei Song, uh, on the stage to chair the session today. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to KMI, to Open University and the Munich Kings and the UK. Uh, in today's uh, keynote speak uh, session, we are honored uh, to have uh, seven uh, very distinct uh, invited speakers. Uh, I don't think I have time to go through their uh, bibliography uh, in much detail. You can find the uh, brief introduction to the speakers in the proceedings. I'd rather leave the time to the speakers. What I want to say is that uh, 
uh, all of our uh, invited speakers are high-profile and internationally uh, recognized experts in the area of multimedia knowledge management, and their expertise covers the most important aspects of uh, MMKM, for example, uh, databases, uh, information retrieval, uh, semantic web, uh, uh, human-computer interface, and uh, industrial applications, and also application uh, in arts. So uh, let's start with uh, the application of MMKM in arts. So let's welcome the first speaker, Professor Frederick uh, for Frederick for Limeray from Goldsmiths uh, University of London. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So. Um, I will talk about the impact of the arts in uh, the domain, do, domain of knowledge management. And um, there's really two messages I'd like to carry uh, to you today. Uh, one is probably the, the more obvious one, which is how uh, the arts uh, might benefit from an interaction with uh, the science and computing in particular. And uh, the, the other aspect is how this can be flipped over and how uh, people such as me in computing can benefit from working with uh, people in the arts. Uh, and by that, I will emphasize how uh, working with an artist you may help you to understand better what it is about knowledge that an artist has uh, integrated in their uh, practice that might be useful to us <laughs> when we deal with uh, knowledge management systems. Um, by the arts, I will also mean not just maybe the obvious visual arts, but um, um, design, architecture, uh, music, etc. Uh, so this is where I am at Goldsmith College. Uh, I came there about four years ago now, and uh, the idea was for me to uh, start up the activity of mixing computing and essentially visual arts, because my, my background is more in visual perception. But in our group, there are experts in, for example, music and computing, and as well as design. Um, to talk about the future, I thought it was a good idea to look at the past. And a few years ago, uh, I was involved in, in creating a lab called the Shape Lab, which is an experiment in that, uh, with the, this idea of mixing uh, arts. Uh, again, arts meaning uh, different fields for me, including architecture or archaeology and the sciences, and here in this group you had uh, people in computer vision, mathematics, computer graphics. Uh, what's fascinating about uh, working in this area is, is to see how for hundreds of years now in archaeology, they've been uh, struggling with the issues we're struggling with now in uh, computing, uh, that is dealing with uh, loads and loads of uh, elements of uh, information. Uh, essentially for this site, which is a beautiful site in the city of Petra in Jordan, where the team uh, I was involved in, uh, I'm still involved with them, um, at Brown University, it goes every summer since 1993. It's uh, one of the temples in the main city of Petra. Uh, some of you probably have heard of Petra. Petra is well known for its tombs, which are carved in the rock, but most of the city is actually uh, buried uh, due to uh, old earthquakes. So what you see here is the work of one team over uh, a bit more than 10 years. Uh, and you see the scale of, of the site. Uh, you have 
uh, if I can bring the, oops, sorry about that. Here, you have a person here. Uh, so this is uh, long, longer than a football field in size. Uh, for such a site, after so many years, they have built a database of uh, about a million uh, objects uh, and about uh, 300,000 uh, architectural artifacts. So these are objects at different scales. Uh, what you see here is a, is a visualization system uh, built on uh, the architecture of what's left, that is the architecture as it is today, and different experimentation on how can we revisit the site that has been worked over the years. What you see here is, for example, trenches that have been uh, worked uh, upon in the last 15 years or so. Uh, here is a virtual reality system where the, the challenge is to access um, hundreds of thousands of objects which are broken, furthermore, usually in multiple pieces. Uh, what kind of interface is useful? Uh, the experience I had uh, involved in, in creating this lab in, in this particular project uh, was that uh, it, it was through a conversation with the archaeologists that we developed uh, better interfaces. And what you see here, actually, in the, in the top corner, uh, upper corner, is one of the first ideas, which was based on a um, uh, GIS, Geo Geography Information Systems, uh, and this was fairly too technical for the archaeologist. Something which was, uh, which would put you in the site as it is today was uh, uh, better in terms of interaction with, for the archaeologist. Uh, there, be a lot, there, there would be a lot more to say about this project, but I just wanted to give you a flavor how mixing computing and one of these arts field might be uh, uh, fruitful. Uh, I'm going to look at a number of other topics uh, um, through the talk. Um, and the first one, uh, will, the emphasis will be uh, going back to that second main idea, which is by working with people in the arts, can we understand better how the human uh, mind uh, functions in terms of uh, knowledge management? Uh, and the, the, the topic of study in this case, in this case study, is uh, drawing, uh, sketching, etc. There, there's been a number of interesting works uh, in the past in this area. This is an example um, that was done in the UK, uh, where a system was devised based on a notion of generalized cylinder, which is what you see here, and a, a representation of objects via graphs. For those who are familiar with computer vision, they'll recognize uh, inspiration from David Ma. And the experiment was to uh, try to see if such a uh, representational knowledge could achieve uh, the level of uh, drawing of a, a child. And what you see here on the, the right hand side is an example of the type of drawing that's possible given this type of representation. And what you see here is the type of drawing uh, by a um, child. Um, very interesting project. Um, I can give you the full reference later. A, a more recent project in the same line is a project I've been involved in with an artist called Patrick Tresse, who's a portraitist uh, who's developed his um, uh, style uh, over the years. He also has an experience as a computer programmer, so he's, he's a, uh, sort of a special case in, in terms of meeting artists, quite experienced in the programming. Um, and the idea with him was to start uh, building a simulator of uh, doing portraits. Uh, and in portraiture, there's um, uh, a number of uh, features which are used uh, by uh, most uh, portraitists 
on which um, a particular style is then based. So essentially what you see here on the right is an illustration of a kind of rule-based system that you would learn at, at the art school uh, upon which uh, th this kind of represent representation would be used to then guide uh, the, draw the drawing gesture of a particular artist who would have developed uh, his own style. So there is basically the, the idea here is that there is something common uh, about uh, learning to draw and then there is something which is original, which is the signature of a particular artist. Um, this particular project for me is, is a key one because uh, of the interest uh, of the field uh, in computer vision in uh, face analysis, of course, and uh, issues of um, security management, for example. Uh, and, and for many, many years now, we've been searching for uh, good ways to um, capture what is the es essence in a face uh, that distinguishes uh, one person from another. Uh, the, the inspiration here, uh, the motivation for this type of work is that uh, an artist will develop knowledge about what kind of features makes a drawing, a representation of the face uh, unique, so much so that when someone does your portrait, the, the actual outline of, of the gestures or the outline of the uh, traits um, can be quite uh, remote from uh, the outlines that you would extract directly from an image. So from a computer vision point of view, it's a very different strategy. Uh, so b basically the, the inspiration, the motivation here is to try to understand uh, what is that that the artist has conceived. And here what we did uh, as a first stage, this was part of his master's thesis, was to develop a step-by-step -step simulator that, uh, that incorporates some of the processings that uh, the artist thinks his mind is doing when he goes about a portrait. Essentially, it's, it's quite simple in, in this, uh, this first project. Uh, there is a, a stage which is able to find faces in image, images. There's a, a typical segmentation step which is able to find uh, regions of uh, shading of interest that will later be used to drive uh, the gestures in terms of thickness, for example, of the traits. Um, there is a, a binary image which is then used to draw lines of which we, sh we, we call gesture curves. So essentially this is a plan for the robotic aspect of drawing. These lines will not be used uh, as a drawing, but they will be used to guide a robotic arm. Uh, so with this kind of simulator, the artist and uh, the scientists are able to uh, start uh, explore the different aspects of what's involved in capturing the essence of a portrait. And here's an example of uh, early uh, drawings of that system a few years ago. This is much more recent. And uh, what's happening next, uh, now that this person is doing a PhD on that to topic, is to introduce notions of feedback, so something much more ambitious. Uh, in the system we have now, there's absolutely no feedback, so it's not at all like what the artist does. Is the artist has at least two types of feedback. They look back at you if, if they're doing your portrait, or they look at what they're doing, and this influences uh, uh, the result. Uh, so this is definitely missing. Uh, next stage will be to try to apply this kind of concept to other uh, signatures or other styles um, in the course of that um, project. So, again, an example of how uh, working in the arts, working with artists, may allow us to... Uh, understand better how the human mind functions in dealing with 
uh, lo loads of data. And what we have here is a, is a classical example of from DALI who uh, worked out a, a process uh, or a computing approach to create uh, portraits within portraits. Uh, just to give uh, other uh, examples of such projects. This is not really a new idea. Uh, here's another example in, in the context of uh, designs of gardens. Uh, this was a paper published in Nature a few years ago by Gerd van Tonda, who's uh, associated to a school of architecture in Japan, and essentially demonstrated that uh, these gardens, which uh, have been built by oral tradition, uh, can be explained in terms of their layout, their design, in terms of a uh, perceptual field. What you see here is a view at the bottom, is a view from above of uh, the garden. And these, uh, this sort of symmetry field is, is a, a type of distance field. Uh, it relates to, for those who are familiar in computer vision, to medial axis type representations or Voronoi diagram. It's a generalization of that. And it turned out that this kind of analysis would explain uh, the layout of the area where you're allowed to contemplate the garden. So what you see at the bottom here is the layout of what's in front of the garden, where people are allowed to go and contemplate the garden. And f uh, for hundreds of years, people have been told to uh, sit at particular positions to, uh, uh, to admire the garden. So it turns out, if you look at the Nature paper, that these positions are... Um, directly in line where these uh, symmetry uh, come together. Uh, furthermore, what's, what you see in red here is where the uh, temple of an old Buddha was, not there anymore, and the, the, the Buddha was sitting at one of the highest points of, of symmetry. So there's a lot of evidence that this kind of analysis, um, so a concept uh, derived from perception was used by uh, gardeners. And what's more interesting, I think, for the future, uh, again, uh, linking to this notion of dealing with tiles and different ways of uh, capturing information is to apply this idea to other style, other signatures. And here, a beginning of a project, collaboration with Gert on looking at uh, existing and uh, other gardens, some of which are, uh, do no longer exist. Um, yet another area where this idea uh, can be found is in the uh, early days of photography, and you have works from, uh, for example, Etienne Jules Marais, uh, who uh, explored, uh, was interested in capturing uh, motion of um, animation of people and um, animals, and explore uh, many ways of illustrating. So this is, would be more of an art-based approach, uh, how to represent this moment, uh, movement, sorry, and came up with, uh, as a better solution, the solution you see in the middle, uh, where essentially what he invented is what was reinvented a few years ago as a motion capture system and was forgotten. Uh, this, all this kind of work was in discussion uh, with other contemporary artists uh, such as uh, Marcel Duchamp. Um, so again, a, a very good example of uh, art and science or computing and science. Um, now I'm going to give you a flavor of something which is uh, maybe more uh, to be expected, which is how uh, the artists might benefit from this collaboration as well. And as an illustration, uh, this is a project uh, I've started when I was at Brown a few years ago with Brower Acher, who's a uh, sculptor who has developed a technique and a style over uh, more than 30 years of practice. Uh, he was actually educated in the UK and went back to uh, 
uh, the U.S. on the East Coast. You see uh, Brower at the bottom here, a very nice uh, person to work with. And he has this idea of biomimetics. Essentially, he is inspired by nature, and he's trying to capture uh, notions of uh, forms from nature in his uh, sculpting practice. Uh, he has developed a, a layered based uh, sculpture method, which is really a representation of space. And this 3D malleable matrix is then used to incorporate more traditional uh, sculptural element. So there is a, a, an issue of digitization here, and uh, we've been developing tools uh, with him to allow him to uh, bring his practice to the next level, which is essentially uh, developing a sculpture at the uh, scale of architecture. So, for example, here you have um, a concept which would follow the topography and uh, some uh, building. Um, and here's a. Uh, this was, I think, the first commission that was w uh, won. Uh, based on this collaboration uh, where a uh, technique using laser scanning was used to capture a natural shape. So this is more of a sort of tra the traditional or more obvious side of where the collaboration might, might be uh, uh, successful between arts and, and computing. Uh, but let me go back to end the talk to this idea of how we may learn from um, how artists conceive of knowledge. Uh, so the, the, in this last uh, example, uh, this is um, work uh, in collaboration with William Latham, who joined Goldsmith last year, and his old collaborator from IBM, Stephen Todd. Um, some of you will be familiar with this work. Uh, essentially, William Latham was inspired by uh, evolution theory and going to the Natural History Museum and being fascinated by how nature is able to come up with uh, new forms, uh, beautiful shapes, um, uh, through uh, something that looks like a process or a computing-based uh, um, approach, which uh, we may consider evolution is. Um, and here's a, one of his early drawings. Uh, so this is a system that Latham created in the mid-'80s called FormSynth, uh, which is, uh, I discovered this work uh, only recently uh, when I first met William about three years ago. But for me, this was uh, absolutely um, fascinating to see that he had come from the arts with an approach which is sort of a grammar base. So what you see here is a number of um, elementary shapes like a cylinder, a sphere, a, um, a cone, etc., which are evolved through a set of rules that he, he came up with by, for example, going to the Natural History Museum and trying to understand how these forms might have occurred. And basically produced a, an algorithm, a, a systematic method to explore the space of possible sculptures. And at the same time, there was work uh, in computer vision, in visual perception, for example, the work of Leighton on the process grammar, which was very mathematical inspired by studies in perception. Uh, of course, these uh, fellows in, uh, didn't know each other at the time. Uh, so they developed this sort of method to create natural form. And the key, I think the key message in their work is um, nature can inspire the artist, can inspire computing in exploring the space of possible, in this case, 3D forms. Um, uh, essentially, the idea is that you have a if, you, if you're able to parameterize this space of possible forms, think, uh, for example, of DNA uh, and uh, how proteins are created, um, 
you have a way, you have sort of an organization to navigate a space which is a priori infinite with uh, possibilities. Uh, this includes not only form, but um, color, texture, materials, etc., properties. So the, the work we're doing together now, why has he come back uh, to um, a, a research environment? For many years, he was in the computer game industry after the IBM work. Um, the idea is, uh, is that uh, we can look at what has happened uh, in the last few years in genetics, genomics in particular, tremendous uh, success uh, in, in uh, changing and creating a new field, literally. Uh, but there is, of course, a lot of um, knowledge which is not really understood uh, uh, in terms of how nature goes from something which is uh, very much DNA or uh, code-based to something which is uh, like a, a living uh, a form. Uh, now, the interest uh, or the, the artist's point of view on that is that, well, let's, let's look at the system we've built inspired by this um, um, source of knowledge, which is looking at how nature evolves form, and let's try to bring uh, the system we already have closer to uh, genomics and um, evolutionary biology by having a conversation between the artist, the biologist, and uh, the computer scientist and mathematician. And uh, this goes back to this idea that I, I wanted to carry on um, this morning, that um, the, one of the benefits of working with an artist it, is that we, if, if there is a good collaboration, if there is an understanding in the discussion, um, they have for... I would say, uh, main goal to um, encode knowledge, you, knowledge that we have in our mind. Uh, so, for example, in this case, in the context of uh, 3D sculpture and before we saw in the context of drawing, sketching. So, I have a, I'm, I'm running out of time. Uh, I have, I'll end with a, uh, a short animation which illustrates the, the most recent work where we're, we're literally putting in place this idea of mixing arts with biology and computing. Uh, and, and the little animation you'll see is a navigation through the um, phylogenetic tree. We go from one protein that today is found in the uh, crystalline of the eye, of the human eye. You can trace it back in the past in over billions of years, and you find it in um, another, uh, an old protein found in uh, bacterium. And then you can trace one of its duplicate and you can find it again uh, somewhere else in the human uh, body, in this case in the liver. Um, and essentially what we are exploring is can we use uh, artistic ideas like Latham's um, to uh, visualize the information. Um, hopefully this will work. Uh, now I need full screen. Right, the... the the resolution here is not great. Sorry about that. Um, I invite you, uh, I can indicate where you can find that. Uh, it, at the moment, it's on YouTube, but we also have a better resolution version. Um, so the, the, the main idea here is that uh, there is little knowledge about how genetics is linked to proteins, how proteins fold in these complex structure. You probably have heard of the word protein folding as one of the a key problem in biology today, in bioinformatics. Um, however, the bioinformaticians have a, a number of dimensions uh, in terms of knowledge to represent information of proteins. So in a discussion with them, it became apparent that 
we could try to map, project this multidimensional space. Uh, in this case, we're using about 40 dimensions. So these are believed to be uh, the main uh, information to characterize proteins and how they fold. So here's the, the journey we'll traverse uh, in the uh, phylogenetic tree going back billions of years. In the past, the 50 million years there is actually the maximum uh, amount of years we cover in one second. The visualization also encodes information via the soundtrack. So the soundtrack is produced from the information derived from proteins. It's a bit dark, especially on the YouTube version. Um, if you go on the website, you, you'll have a better view of that. Sorry about that. So in the conversation with the biologist, when they look at this kind of a visualization, there's a bit of surprise, but they become interested when they see um, motion that were not expected, for example, an acceleration as you have here. And then if we go back in, the, in terms of where are we on the phylogenetic tree, this may uh, bring up uh, um, a piece of information that was not suspected. Uh, we've also used this kind of approach to look at uh, genetic defects. Uh, there's a paper on that I can indicate if you're interested. It will be presented in a month. This visualization was produced uh, in part using the uh, national grid system of uh, the UK uh, and some open source software for the um, rendering, uh, something called Pixie. Um, it involves a number of people, and again, I'll be happy to talk of the details with you later. Um, so this this is uh, the end of the talk. I just bring uh, there may be a time for one question or two. Um, just a summary here of, of the main ideas I was trying to carry on uh, to you today. Thank you very much. Okay, so we have time, uh, about five minutes time for questions. Hi, my name is Patricia Charlton. It's very interesting to see the work on bioinformatics and information interpretation at the end. But you started out with this better understanding of the mind and yes. um, pattern interpretations and so mm -hmm. on. Have you actually found sort of a link between how people... I use and navigate through information specific, say, in the multimedia world that you can reuse to, to assist in navigating through all of that data? Is anything more specific to that, or has it more been on the bioinformatics? Uh, I guess the closest to that um, would be probably the experience with the archaeologist. Um, um, initially, uh, we, we started different visualization of, of the data uh, which were based on the uh, GIS approach. So actually what I had on my slide was already a better version of that idea. And only by having um, the user involved in the uh, experiments uh, were we able to find what was a, a better or proper uh, level of visualization of that information. Uh, so if, if we had not had that collaboration, 
um, I think we would have developed a very nice and particular technique, uh, but it would probably have been of no use or in practice, it would have not been considered by the um, users we, we were targeting. So that's one level uh, where implicitly, I think, the, the knowledge is, is embedded by having this conversation you can refine without necessarily understanding why um, one way of representing is better than the other. I think the work uh, with the, um, the drawer, the, the portraitist, is much more uh, at that level of trying to pinpoint, hopefully, uh, what it is that an artist extracts from, in this case, faces, uh, so that I even if you have a caricature, which is, can be a, a, quite a deformation of, of the reality, you still immediately recognize the, the person. So I, th I think that particular project is more in line with what you're uh, discussing. Um, and indeed, the, the other projects are, it's more implicit. The, the knowledge that we, we gain. The, the work on the bioinformatics, it seemed it took, you took the, the knowledge from the biologist and, and reinterpret it for them to sort of see the changes and the flow of information in a multi-dimensional way that they couldn't actually sort of perhaps visualize in their head yes. directly. So then they could see differences, which for the bioinformatics, I see that's a huge step. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I was sort of wondering also if that then feeds back into potential new ways of interfacing to data and technology, say, in this large-scale databases and so on. I, I don't know. I'm, it's just a question. Uh, yeah, well, so that's uh, – thank you. Yes, I think that's definitely um, what we're thinking that may happen. Uh, uh, I forgot to mention the, the bioinformaticians are people from um, Imperial College, uh, so this collaboration is London-based. Um, and there's, this has been going on now for a year. So there's not only was there initially a, uh, a conversation, so we understood better what kind of information they're dealing with and what, what it is that they would like to, to visualize um, uh, or apprehend. Uh, but this is ongoing, uh, and they are involved in the project now. Uh, so there's actually a, another version of this work that was recently presented at the National Institute of Medical Research in North London, where... Uh, there's another animation, I didn't bring it today, um, which where the forms that we're exploring are much closer to actual protein uh, forms. Uh, so this collaboration now involved, they became interested. So we, we went to them and we tried to understand their, uh, the way they conceive of uh, this information. But now they're actually coming back to us with ideas um, and going further. Uh, the other thing to say about that area, uh, that's what they tell us, and there are experts in, in that, well-known experts in that field, um, Lawrence Kelly and uh, Ben Jeffries, um, is that uh, up to now uh, in bioinformatics and in genomics in particular, the ways to apprehend data, visualize data, is very, very traditional. So it's either typical plot graphs or a uh, sequence of numbers which are uh, compared with each other, um, things that are really elementary when you come from the point of view of visualization, so um, th this collaboration is, is probab probably has lots of potential. Thank you. Any more questions? Thanks, I'm Ken Wood. Um, I have a question. You had a slide where you put up um, uh, something that, that indicated the sort of multidisciplinarity that, 
these projects that you do entail between artists and biologists and computer scientists. And I was just wondering, how do you find actually managing the interplay between those three types of people? Because when I've seen things like this, I mean, artists just speak a completely different language to computer scientists. And that, you know, that really can cause some sort of interesting dynamics. Yes, uh, indeed, you're right. Um, So I've I've had a a number of these experiences now. I guess the, the, the most the first uh, large one was the archaeology project. That's why, in a sense, I started with that. Is uh, it was my first experience in that domain. And the that project is still the, the lab still exists. There's still uh, efforts uh, being put in that project after now nine years. Um, actually, ten years because we started discussing this before we started in '99 officially. Um, and we spent once we got the, the funding and there was now. Um, we could bring all the people to the table regularly. Uh, it took us at least a year, I think, before we started, each side started to understand, uh, just at the level of language, for example. So the archaeologists have yeah. this very sophisticated and, uh, way of describing their problems and objects, for example, uh, shapes, which if, if you say shape, it may not mean the same thing for them. Uh, another area like that is architecture, where shape form means, shape means 2D shapes, form means 3D uh, yeah. shape. Not for everybody, but often. Uh, so this kind of uh, issue is always present. You have to be aware of it, and you have to be willing to uh, spend time um, to go across that bar- that initial barrier. Uh, the other key, I would say, is um, it, it, it becomes personal relations. So uh, I think because it, it demands to spend a lot of time trying to understand the other, and in, it, initially nothing comes out, really, that's original, um, make sure that um, you get along well so that you, you can this will actually survive this first phase. That would be my other recommendation. But it is an issue, definitely. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Okay. So I think we don't have uh, enough time for more questions. Let's thank Patrick uh, again. Thank you. Yeah. So the second speech is about uh, the future of multimedia information retrieval. So let's welcome the second uh, speaker, Dr. Uh, Alex uh, Hoffman from uh, Carnegie Mellon University, U.S. Okay. Um, So, yeah, hi, I'm Alex Hoffman. And I will try and talk about uh, multimedia retrieval, um, more specifically, things related to video retrieval, but then at the end I'll very much go beyond that. Um, I've been encouraged by Stefan not to talk about my research, but instead try to look towards the future, which, of course, is tricky, because <laughs> what do I know about the future? Um, but nevertheless, I think um, in this talk what I'll try and do is come up with some directions of research that I think I would encourage, say, the next generation of PhD students to pursue, because I think it's worthwhile and it has the potential to open up new fields. And that's sort of where this talk will will end up at the end. So um, uh, a few years ago, um, I think it was about 2005, a a number of people... uh, got together at ACM Multimedia and we were sort of, there was a sense of shock. Um, And it was uh, the notion that, well, 
a lot of what we're trying to do is sort of happening and it's happening uh, without our help. Um, and uh, among them were sort of phenomena like Flickr and YouTube um, and also the fact that uh, you know everybody has a camera on their cell phone and they have GPS on their cell phone and all these things that we're trying to do, figure out location of, of where this image was taken, could happen automatically. And um, so one of the uh, thing, predictions is that most metadata will be attached at creation time. We don't have to automatically analyze much of anything. It'll be already encoded. If it's not encoded now, but sort of, you can see that it wouldn't be very hard to encode a lot of this um, with a small bit of metadata with a JPEG file or an MPEG-4 format or whatever. The format that's don't matter, but it's, it's fairly easy to encode a few bits in there that capture this. Um, so, for example, the cameras can record location, lighting, camera motion, uh, you know, zoom levels, and so forth. Uh, that's all there. We don't have to understand it. They uh, also know the distance of the main object because that's what they're focusing on, given that... There's an autofocus built in. Um, if you're editing video, uh, editing actions can be remembered and connected to the final video product. So you know there was a cut here or there was a fade. And you know this scene was sort of a continuation of this other scene uh, four shots earlier because that's the way the editor put it together. There's no question at that time how these things are related. We don't have to go back and then analyze, well, this car chase is the same you know, it's the same car as this car. You know it when you're creating this this uh, movie that these things, this is the same car. So um, that's definitely true for movies and sports events. These things tend to have very high production value. There are a lot of people um, spending a lot of time producing it. There's a lot of profit in there. So um, particularly for uh, sports and movies, uh, companies get very upset if you uh, start downloading them to YouTube. Um, and because there's so much high costs, the incremental cost to do good manual art annotation is fairly small. So, you know, somebody sits there and makes a movie trailer. It's worth it for them. It's not worth it for us to build an automatic movie trailer generation system. It's sort of intellectually an interesting exercise. But people do this, and they do this well, better than automatic systems can do it conceivably. Is there really value in there? You could argue there's value in there in creating a trailer that's sort of customized to you and your preferences that, you know, Stefan might want to see sort of the females in the uh, video summarized. I might want to see the action scenes and the deaths and so forth. But that's um, th that's a little tricky. But even that could be done manually that you could have five, six versions of trailers created to individual tastes. So... This is not where interesting research, um, or the, according to this uh, projection, this is not where interesting research uh, should happen. So let's turn to the next thing, which would be low-value video production, the stuff you find on uh, YouTube, Flickr, and so forth. So, you know, if you go to these sites, well, they do video search, right? Flickr, you can type in anything. You get images of what you want. YouTube, you type something, you get what you want. And so um, there again, is, this is probably much better than automated methods from uh, what I've seen. And I'll show you some results from automated methods in a couple of slides. 
Well, um, in, in these uh, social uh, web 2.0 sharing sites, you have user comments, annotation, tags, links, responses, and so forth, and you can search all of that. Um, retrieval capability is, is apparently quite good. Millions of people use it. And um, so there's this conjecture that everything will be done with social and human computation. Um, so there'll be other t people who look at your video and do the annotation for you, forget anything automatic. And um, human computation, are you familiar with Louis von Ahn's work at Carnegie Mellon University? Um, he, his big idea is this ESP game. Um, and um, so it's a game that's out there on the, inter the Internet. Um, thousands of people use it. And what, they, what he does is he picks an image from the Internet somewhere randomly, and there are two people playing, uh, and if they both guess the same word, they get a point. And so the, the idea is just to get points. If they both, um, so for this, um, the person playing right now typed in blue shirt, and if the other part, if the partner also types in blue shirt, they get a point. And previously, other people who've played this have already annotated this image, so uh, a taboo word for this, meaning it's already been done, is man. So they can't both choose the word man. One of the interesting things is the other word that people jointly found, two random people on the internet, jointly described this image as MOOC. Um, you know, th this is, blows my mind. Um, it, 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 it doesn't, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, let alone that to be, and, and you know, it's it's a, it's a it's a paradigm where it's it's a, the idea is to avoid this kind of um, random word. So it's not a random word. It's clearly a description that a culture on the internet shares. Anybody know what what it's about? Okay, I don't I don't either. I, I'm, I've seen it in other places, so it's it's not just a random word. Here's another case. Um, YouTube. This is this is a great example actually. So here's a young man uh, who has this golf club. And he has this container in front of him that um, contains some liquid and there's a burning wick on the top. And he's trying to uh, effectively bat it off into the distance to, um, let's see, to towards this um, uh, can over there. So then he hits it and things don't work the way he thinks. So now um, the search term that you need to find this particular clip is this word, P-W-N-E-D. There's another one. You know, initially you say, well, what, what is that? Um, but in, in fact, uh, at the time I did this search, um, this was the only term that described this video. There was no other annotation of this. Um, I'm, I'm told by some high school kids in the United States that this means, this is pronounced pooned or pwned, and it's a... Uh, obviously a typographical error um, from the word owned, uh, but it's, it's not a, a simple error that th just this person made it. There are, uh, at that point, there were 8,000 videos, if you can see this, read this number here, 8,000 videos on YouTube with that description. Not intuitive to me. Um, anyway, pooned um, is owned, and it occurred as a typo in, I think, in the game World of Warcraft. I, I had to research this, because otherwise I couldn't talk about it. Uh, in the World of Warcraft, when you defeated your opponent decisively, 
the intention was the system would then say, you own him. And instead it was a typo and it was PWN. And because thousands of people play this, they started using this word and it has been adopted around uh, people that sort of you, you, you know, in this case, the, the event has decisively defeated um, this young man. Um, the, uh, I think what becomes clear here is we can't really trust this social annotation or the ESP game to do all the work for us, even though it would be foolish to ignore that aspect. We should not continue our research pretending that none of that stuff is out there. The trick is to, to leverage it and combine what we're doing with uh, what's out there. Um, here's another great example. Uh, so if you look for The Lion Sleeps Tonight on YouTube, um, your first couple of hundred hits all look like this. And these are uh, sort of film strips from each line is a different hit. And what you find that you know somebody uploaded a video and then somebody else downloaded it and uploaded it again. Uh, and uh, sometimes they reformat it, um, provide different um, aspect ratio, maybe different frame rate, you know, 25 frames per second versus 29.97. Uh, sometimes they put like their own little messages on there um, uh, for whatever they want to tell you or advertisement for websites and so forth. But it's all really essentially was the same video. So that's something currently, if it's completely identical, they can catch it. But these relatively minor variations are not being caught by the major search engines. And you do not really want to go through several hundred of these to say, oh, is there one that's different? Let me go to a third uh, myth or challenge here. Um, and this is, again, uh, uh, thanks to uh, Stefan, who sort of, poo-pooed uh, some of the things we're doing and said, you know, it doesn't work any better than just... It's mostly text search anyway. Why are you bothering? Um, and um, that was definitely true if you look at the TrekVid 2001 through 2003 evaluations where the best performing systems were based entirely on, on clever text search, some pseudo-relevance feedback, and that was good enough. Um, so I actually went back and, and dug up um, results 2005 and 2006 and 2007. look very similar. Um, you see here three different types of runs. The uh, red ones, I'm not sure. the red ones are inter interactive runs. The green ones are manual, which allow you sort of a, a one-time modification, but then the query gets answered automatically. And um, the blue ones are fully automatic where the system take, understands the query and then answers it. And if you look at the text baselines, obviously there's no text baseline for the interactive one because you always need a person in there. Uh, if you look at the text baseline for the manual compared to the best manual systems, there is a significant difference. And the same for the automatic, there is a significant difference here. Um, the point is these differences are significant. Um, however, if you look at this, the accuracy is pathetic. Uh, so while uh, the queries were designed to show off uh, visual aspects of these uh, search systems, uh, at you know, 0.1 uh, mean average precision, this is just not particularly uh, 
stellar results. And if you then say, you know, what did OCR contribute to this? You know, you're looking at the sort of 0.001 type of level, and we made a significant improvement by doubling the 0.001 to 0.002 by having good OCR performance in there. So uh, we're playing with very, very small numbers here. These numbers here are actually relatively respectable. Um, so, in, but we do get some positive results. And the question is, what makes video retrieval work? Um, generally, we find that low-level vi- visual features are not sufficient to understand an image or a video clip. This is known as the semantic gap. Um, so texture, color, shape, shape that is automatically extracted is not sufficient. So uh, what people are currently doing is looking at uh, describing the video through intermediate concepts, outdoors, boat, building, clouds, and sort of composing a description of the image automatically. Um, We can learn, build classifiers for these concepts automatically based on training data, and they are what drives most of the, uh, or a large part of the benefit in the retrieval from a text baseline is derived from semantic concepts. Um, And uh, now I'll get for so what? the, what if we could detect a lot of concepts? And the analogy here that I have is to speech recognition. When you have a speech recognizer for 100 words, you, you, it's just not very useful. When you have 1,000 words, it's still not very useful. And we found about 10 years ago that when you get to a 20,000-word vocabulary or then a 64,000-word vocabulary, even with airful recognition, um, spoken document retrieval was quite feasible. And um, there are certain U.S. government agencies that use that successfully on cell phone conversations and so forth. Um, so one of the, the uh, directions we went into was to say, well, what if uh, we could get a lot of concepts and annotate those for videos and um, do experiments with those? And that was the ELSCOM workshop, Large Scale Ontology for Multimedia, Here are some example concepts. And then we looked at three different subsets of these, a small one, uh, 39 concepts, 75 concepts, and 300 concepts. And we did some speculative sort of futuristic scenarios. Suppose we could detect things perfectly. um, So you can detect the concept and you can figure out for a particular query, which concepts do you need? Uh, We looked at both perfect and noisy detection uh, and realistic combination with a 50% error rate. And then we extrapolated from these uh, 300, up to 300 that we had, and said, what happens with some reasonable assumptions? How well can we do retrieval? And this was a paper last year. Um, The uh, X's here, I don't know if you can see those. I can find find, find the pointer here. Can't get the mouse. There it is. Um, the X's, they're sort of here, show the actual data points that we started with, and after about 300 here, we, you know, this is speculation, right? We project into the future, and if we can do perfect detection, this says at about 1,000 concepts, we get a very high mean average precision. This is about what the best text retrieval systems can do on web searches. And... um, these are sort of unrealistic assumptions. If you go, to, go with realistic assumptptions, when you get to about uh, three, four thousand concepts, you should be able to do, do pretty decent retrieval, 
even with airfall detection accuracy and airfall estimates of which concepts are useful for a particular query. Is it true? I don't know. This is what we're talking about the future. So um, now I'm going to uh, look at, uh, go towards the end of, of uh, my presentation and say, well, where can we go from here? Um, hopefully I've convinced you there is some future in trying to work on retrieval with robust semantic concepts. It turns out while the numbers that we had for estimating the accuracy of detection are quite realistic because that was actually what was achieved in the TrekVid semantic concept evaluation task, it is also true that these are very specialized, domain-specific kind of training events. When we tried to apply those same concept detectors on web video, we got a factor of 5 to 10 worse performance. So we were, we're nowhere close to uh, getting the right level of accuracy that we were hoping for in a general sense. We can't really tell what uh, a building looks like. We could tell that for broadcast news of this type, buildings have a little bit of this characteristic, but that's about it. Um, hopefully, I, I'm, I'm paving the ground here for a, for a speaker this afternoon. Is this a place where uh, ontologies have a, have a room where you can combine these concepts with some knowledge of what a car and a person means together? You know, there's a bicycle and a person. Are they, is he riding the bicycle? Is he standing next to the bicycle? Is he getting hit by the bicycle? And so forth. Uh, at the very beginning, I talked about retrieval of web video, duplicate removal, summarization, and preview of stuff that's on the web. And um, I think as there's a big challenge here of combining uh, the social network analysis with content analysis to do something interesting in terms of understanding what different groups of people focus on when they're uh, looking at, uh, when they're doing video retrieval or when they're uploading or downloading video. The next area um, that I think is, is very challenging and fruitful is to look at uh, surveillance data, doing retrieval from surveillance video. Um, I remember talking from, to somebody from the home office, I think, and he was describing to me how they had, he didn't say exactly how many, but many, many people looking at uh, the video, recorded video from the London Underground when the uh, bombings happened, happened a few years ago. And essentially, sort of everybody they had was looking at video, trying to find these guys, where did they enter, what station did they enter, uh, given that they saw them in the last few seconds, then they had to sort of go back and look at thousands of hours of video to figure out uh, where these guys are. And they're not great tools to help them retrieve that. And that's the sort of, you're not going to find people to annotate this over, you know, on, on YouTube or whatever to tag it with, oh, here's the guy again. Uh, and and there are more and more cameras every day. So we're running out of people to uh, to do that kind of annotation. Let me, um, and this will require sort of a collaboration of multimedia guys who sort of know how difficult video is, computer vision guys who can do very good analysis of, of short pieces of video with, with good theory, but often what they do don't, doesn't scale. And information, information retrieval guys who have a sense of how to look at a few hundred thousand things and uh, try to find things that are relevant to your queries. So let me give you a quick scenario. 
um, from a nursing home. So um, we've uh, actually, basically we've only collected the data. Um, in th- at this case, we were looking in a nursing home trying to do video and sense analysis. Um, and the goal is to uh, detect symptoms of dementia in the hope of monitoring and helping them maintain quality of life. So the idea is we're all getting older and uh, we want to avoid sitting in a nursing home in a wheelchair sort of just drooling. Maybe somebody can help us just before we get there. Uh, and specifically, we were trying to do quantitative measurements, measurements to explore um, how dementia progresses over time, um, looking at frequency of symptoms that can be observed, developed a patient profile of responses to pharmacological inter- interventions, whereas the doctor only comes every two weeks, asks the person, are you good? And the person says, oh, yeah, I'm fine. And that's it. They don't remember that they fell two days ago and, you know, they sort of, these are old people that can barely, they, there's no self-reporting that works. And the nurses that they have are way too busy to uh, provide sort of careful supervision of what these people do. Um, these are the kinds of things that we're trying to identify the people. Are they wandering? Are they doing something, working on a task, looking for things, social interaction? Can we detect anomalies? Um so the next thing I'm going to, uh, I'll, I will touch on in the last few minutes, um, integrating retrieval with, from, of videos with sensor data and audio and text data. And, uh, my example there is the digital human memory idea, uh, which has been around also for probably close to 10 years now. Record everything you do, um, and, you know, you, you have a cell phone, um, uh, the Microsoft has these uh, uh, sense cams. Uh, you can add GPS. Uh, you can your telephone can record who you're calling, uh, who called you. You can also wear uh, body sensors that record heat, blood pressure, and so forth continuously. This is much much more than going doing it once a month when you go to the doctors. So capture all that uh, and then transform that into a meaningful information resource that will help maybe prevent a heart attack because you can tell that there's certain small signs that are coming earlier, but you can only tell because you're recording continuously and you have a continuous record, whereas if you just go measure your blood pressure every once in a while, you might not see anything abnormal. And it's, it's a different view of, of how to do it. And it's certainly feasible in terms of the amount of data you're recording. Okay, um, and... Uh, so then uh, other areas that I think are very interesting and I would encourage people to take a look at this in the future, I'm not saying it's easy, looking at emotion. How is emotion portrayed and how is emotion perceived? Uh, it's such a big thing in especially the advertising world and in movies. You know, Why is this a sad scene? Is it just the violins in the background? Can we even you know, say, okay, these are sad violins? Um, can we... Can we Tell what's going to, how is this going to impact uh, somebody? Just uh, even at a primitive level, I think that would be very challenging. Um, an analysis of bias and perspective in editing and presentation. So, um, you know, what makes Sky News different from BBC News? Can you automatically put your finger on what is the difference here? And 
you can uh, th- there are there, certainly there there are editing uh, style manuals that um, reveal some of the tricks that they use to portray this guy as less appealing or more appealing just through subtle ways in in the way the camera uh, is positioned and so forth or the the excerpts that they play um, as well as the text uh, that is presented um, the 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 nice thing about this it, it actually provides has the potential certainly in the United States it, it would it would do many uh, people in the United States good to understand a little bit more what the Arabs are thinking I mean they're not just cavemen that are out to destroy liberty and freedom everywhere uh, which is the way they're perceived but if they sort of could look at how uh, Arabic television portrays um, things and, and how that's different from the bias that they see on Fox News that I think would be very helpful and if we could Make tools, uh, build tools to make that uh, accessible, visible. I think would be helpful. Um, more immediately, there are a number of companies that are interested in inserting advertising into video, say that you download from YouTube or that you're watching, um, because there, that's where the money is um, in in this business. Um, tools for creating uh, videos and doing video mashups that hopefully build with uh, do are. are give you a sense, well, you have this video, you could combine it with this one based on these criteria. I haven't seen any tools that really give you suggestions on how to combine videos, create new ones. And then, um, in general, I think paradigms for information access for imperfect data. I'll stop here and take any questions. Questions, please. Hi, you, you introduced some interesting sort of ap- future applications in this sort of content and video and analysis and the human memory. Um, I see in there a lot of kind of ethical related questions because when you start putting this information together, um, sort of the semantic attacks and so on that can then be resulting from that or wrong information. Mm-hmm. What's your perspective on dealing with the abuse of information? Um, in many ways, I think we've lost the battle for uh, the public information in the public space. I mean, surveillance cameras are everywhere, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so, so you know, you you can't walk through London without being recorded, whether you're happy or not. You know, you can't be in this room without being recorded. <laughs> Yeah, we've lost that battle in, in, in many ways. This is, might as well give up. Uh, or, you know, anything that's written about you on the web, Facebook. I, probably most of you here don't have a Facebook page. Most of my students do. Yeah. <laughs> There's a difference. I don't. Um, it's out there. It won't go away. So we've lost it. In terms of the private, the medical data and so forth, clearly that has, is, is, is in a different sphere. And I think that's probably one place where we can draw a line. I guess I was thinking on terms of, especially when you were sort of talking about um, the sort of human digital sort of um, watching, you know, looking at the nursing home kind of example and the dementia. And there's this sort of drive and strive in technology to fix things, you know, and, and, and at the same time, sometimes that oversteps the mark. And you see it in various sort of walks of life. Um, and although you can do something, say technology can provide that information, there's sort of a question whether it's 
really where we want to be going with finding that information and um, you know, removing the responsibility from the individual, which is what some of the technology seems to strive before, towards as well. Um, I certainly don't see it that way. Uh, I see what what's happening is is specifically in, in, in the, this nursing home data that we have for about 25 days, 24 hours a day. We see that there's an old lady who's actually trying to communicate and she's vocalizing but it, you can't understand what she's saying, what she's, what she means. But if you watch her for a while, you see she's trying to communicate. The nurses perceive her, this as a disruptive vocalization. They get some medicine, and she starts to sort of uh, quiet down and sit in the corner and you know, drool. Uh, you know, I, I, I think if we had objective measures that a physician could then look at and say no, 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 this is not the time for me to be prescribing more antipsychotics. Let's get her into a program where she can interact more. Makes sense to me. So you're sort of saying you see it as a sort of um, kind of fixing some of the social behaviours that are going a bit off the, off the mark. Fixing, I, I think we're all getting older and the, the population that, that sits in nursing homes is growing very rapidly. And to the extent that we can, and the, the staff, is short. I mean, they're expensive. To the extent that we can improve the quality of life at that point, fixing is maybe too too strong of a term. It's, it's too simplistic. Point out places where there, there could be improvements. I think that would be good. I guess I was talking about the modern behavior in that sense, um, sort of addressing that, that we've lost some kind of understanding. So the technology is stepping in to illustrate to us perhaps yeah. where we're over-medicating. Hi, I'm Joachim Sarabai. Um, for these robust concepts, uh, do you use ontologies? Uh, did you find a reasonable way of, of using them, actually, in this context? We have an ontology. We've not found a reasonable way to use it. <laughs> uh, that's still the challenge out there. Hi. Um, in your talk, you give examples about this um, YouTube, and mm -hmm. you think that human annotations might not be reliable enough for video uh, retrieval. But for my opinion, I think it's a very interesting phenomenon. It's like you have some new words from new generation of people, and that forms a folksonomy where you can generate a new generation of ontology. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of opportunity for you to gather the information without you need to talk to a high school student directly. So do you think that's a complementary towards the yes. traditional video retrieval? Absolutely. Uh, and I think I, I mentioned that, that I don't think we should ignore it. I think we should look at that, understand where, we sh where it doesn't make sense for us to compete, compete in terms of the automatic video analysis and, and multimedia retrieval, and where we should work together and and uh, mesh together with what's, what's out there. I think those are the challenges in the next few years, uh, figuring out how to complement what's there, because what's there is not perfect. Certainly, at my age, it, it looks a little odd. Um, but uh, finding out these are terms, these are things that you, you I could relate to would be helpful. Any more questions? 
Just a question about your nursing home scenarios. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, you said you collect about uh, how many, 30 days? 24 hours? 20, 26 yeah. days from 25 cameras. 24 for for hours. that amount of videos, so you have done your analysis, perhaps, have you done it? Or we've done what? it on a chunk. About a third of it we've actually processed. Right. It's just 25, 26 terabytes. It means it's a lot of data. So basically, you use part of data to do analysis, then use the, the rest of data to do this sort of checking of your result or performance? Yeah, well, we're still very early. I think this is, this is right. a, a project that will last a few more years just working through this data. Right, because um, I see his first uh, sort of presentation, uh, first uh, the papers was published a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, in my, so we start in my with guess. sort of building small detectors. Can we detect social interaction? Can we detect walking behavior in this video reliably. And now that we've done experiments that we can detect these, we're getting to the point where hopefully sometime this year we'll actually run it over a large amount of data to see what we find. And hopefully in two or three years we can see what we can detect and correlate that with the medical records that we have for that period of time. But uh, yeah, this, this you don't run over 20 or at least we're not Google, so we can't run over 25 terabytes today and, and look at it again tomorrow and do it again. So we, we no, need so to do it slowly. The, in the end, what is your so expected result? You want to do some sort of real-time so detection or information yeah. or just post So, for example, if we can detect that this person had fewer social interactions in the last week of the month than in the first week of the month, and they also got some new – I mean, they, they all have some social interaction – because there's a nurse that comes and talks to them. But maybe, you know, sort of independently, they only had half the number of social interactions at, uh, at the end than at the beginning. And we can correlate that with some other event, some other medication. That would be quite valuable because it's the kind of information that is not available in a medical record. Okay, thanks. Any more questions? If there's no more questions, let's uh, thank Alex again. So the next speaker is uh, Professor Thomas Seidel from uh, RWTH Aachen. He will be talking about his opinion about the future of MMPM from database and the data mining point of view. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Hello. Uh, also from my side, and um, my topic is multimedia databases, and I want to give um, an additional direction, which is multimedia data mining. Um, <clears throat> so what we are looking at is uh, to support that what um, Alex um, uh, mentioned in the last sentence. We need new um, paradigms to access data, and what we as database people try to do is to, to follow up with uh, some techniques to do that efficiently if um, there are uh, proposals for that. So to give you an overview, what I um, want to tell you is um, three points. The first one is I want to... <clears throat> to discuss content-based similarity search. Uh, all of you, I would assume, is uh, familiar with that. So I want to come up with a, a few particular things. First, the complex similarity models. Uh, no, here's the most. Um, and uh, an idea of um, how we think of efficient algorithms, uh, introducing approximations and indexing. So that goes down to a very technical level. 
And um, the, um, the two more future-oriented um, topics are the um, interaction models, which are more or less new or more or less you, know, you might be familiar, for example, with the uh, um, relevance feedback. And uh, there are incremental search um, things. And uh, a new topic, at least in data mining, is anytime approaches. And in the last part, I want to, uh, to go to the um, data mining field uh, with a with the topics I want to discuss then. So let's start with the content-based similarity search. And um, a typical example is uh, you have a set of images. Uh, this may be a large set, um, not only these um, few um, um, images, but thousands or hundreds of thousands to millions or even more images. And a typical um, um, question or query to the system is this retrieval ta uh, task, which images in the archive are similar to, for example, this one, this sample image. And um, as a very um, um, basic model, we have the, the color frequency, so that is um, based on the color histograms I want to see uh, to, um, to come in the next slides. And so you will agree that these green ones here are most similar. There's no object detection, which is a, would be a higher um, a semantic level. But here we can already study some effects um, for efficiency. And, <clears throat> for example, we did this um, on the um, uh, Mosaic poster. So all of you might be familiar with Mosaic posters, but um, um, only a few people might be familiar with this building. This is the main building of the RWTH University in Aachen, quite close to the city center. So if you um, visit the famous cathedral and the famous city hall, and it's only five minutes by walk, then you can look to uh, this um, building. And if we transform that um, by, uh, by a, a mosaic program, in this case we have 2,500 images uh, chosen, then it works uh, the way that um, we make um, cells out of the image. And oh, it takes a while to, to have the mouse here. Um, and each of these cells is substituted by any image out of the database. Um, so we have an airplane here or we have a horse over there. Um, so we have quite different um, um, uh, images um, which are chosen by the color similarity to, um, to the original field to create this. So you can download already uh, programs from the Internet um, uh, to create this. Um, and it doesn't matter how long this uh, computation uh, last, so the, the idea is uh, to demonstrate uh, that um, image retrieval can be accelerated by transforming that um, to video retrieval. Uh, not video retrieval, but to, to, um, um, to have a, a video base as, um, as query objects. I come to this immediately. Uh, first, let me sh um, uh, shortly recall the model behind. <clears throat> so we might work with colors, textures, shapes, and so on. These are the these basic physical, uh, more or less physical um, um, features um, extracted from images typically. And in typical cases, you describe the content by histograms. So we have a distribution of the frequencies of the different colors, and you can discretize this or quantize this, and you come up with histograms or um, in a different case with um, signatures where you um, do not have a bin for every potential color 
in um, in a database, um, but where you have um, only the the information in in the individual images. In this case, we stay with the histograms. Uh, for example, uh, the color histograms. Are, oh, sorry, the color histograms are very similar for these images, um, and they may, there might might be different texture histograms. So. Um, <clears throat> this is the first step to a specification of the similarity by formal models. So if you want to compute something and if you want to compute it efficiently, we need to have some formalization. <clears throat> and if we have already given these histograms, maybe color, texture, whatever, um, then we can compare these histograms. And often you do it by histogram intersection or by Euclidean distance. These are very close to each other. Um, <clears throat> and they compare... Um, the histogram spin by bin. So if we have these two images, then they have a, a big distance in this sense, since um, there is no one of the uh, of the pixels in the lower image is as dark blue as in the upper image, and there's a great difference in terms of the yellow, of the dark yellow and the dark red, uh, since here we do not have these dark colors. Um, and so this bin-by-bin bin consideration tells us that these images are quite uh, different to each other. So the, the cross-bin similarities, that dark blue and, and bright blue is quite close to each other, is neglected. So people thought about different models, and there are, for example, quadratic forms where we um, stay in the world of linear algebra. So the Euclidean distance is, is an inner product of of difference vectors, and if you introduce a similarity matrix, we have um, this quadratic form, and there we can define or specify um, <coughs> cross-spin similarities between these spins. Uh, another model, um, which was defined some eight year, uh, ten years ago um, by um, Rupner at Stanford University, is the Earth Movers Distance, uh, where we are not in the world of linear algebra, but in the world of linear programming. And here we define the similarity of two histograms um, in terms of a transportation problem. So how much effort is necessary, um, how much effort must be spent to transform the first signature, or the first histogram, to the other one. And so it's only a small amount of work to... Um, to transform dark blue to bright blue, uh, bright blue, sorry, or uh, dark red to to a bright red um, tone, sorry. Um, and um, we again have a matrix. It's not a similarity matrix where we encode the similarities between um, these spins, but it's a distance matrix where we encode the the ground distance. And here is um, just for reference the formula. We see the the linear program. We have a linear objective function, and we have a set of linear constraints. So it's solvable, but it's very, um, I'm sorry, <coughs> it's very uh, time-consuming to compute this. So um, you have a new model to retrieve images or multimedia objects from a database, but it's very, very costly. In particular, if you think of this mosaic program we have seen before, if we um, do that not on still images but on video. So we have a video stream, um, and in our setting, um, which we called attention attractor, we have a webcam. So people that look at the system <coughs> um, may appear on the screen, and uh, you do not see the original image, but we make a mosaic out of, uh, of that image, and uh, we have um, that mosaic image which um, is produced uh, in real time out of this um, webcam. So uh, it's a demonstration that um, not a single query is processed very fast. So you click the, the enter um, button and you see 
the images there, but we have thousands of queries um, um, in, in very short time uh, frames. Um, so the, the, that's just a demo that in many applications it's demanded to have a similarity search or similarity retrieval uh, very quickly. Um, and how can you do this? And this is a very general idea can, which can be applied in different areas. Um, <clears throat> and um, I think that's what also in the future uh, will stay being interested in accelerating um, similarity search, the similarity retrieval by filter refine architectures. <clears throat> so we have the database with millions of objects and we derive some index information which is redundant and we start query processing by a filter. Uh, where we have a, an appropriate filter distance uh, function that retrieves um, a candidate set out of the index or prunes or discards many objects out of the index which are not candidates for the, um, for the final query. And um, then, oh, I'm sorry, the pointer is gone. Um, <laughs> from time to time it appears. Yeah, here is it. And uh, we have that candidate set, and only these candidates have to be exactly evaluated with this, with this expensive quadratic forms so or the even more expensive um, um, earth movers distance, for example, transportation distance, producing the result. So we have a filter step um, that guarantees for, or that performs fast pruning, and only a few, hopefully a few candidates, um, has to be have to be refined um, to produce the exact result. So that are ideas um, early produced by, by Christos Feluzos, and we did some um, refinement for, for that idea. Um, but it's still uh, very useful, as we have observed, uh, for, for different domains. Um, and the question is how to assess the quality of such a filter. And we um, created the acronym ISIS uh, describing that. So you can think of it in winter uh, if it's uh, frozen uh, water outside, or you can think of it. In summer, if, you are, uh, if it's so hot you like ice cream, so it's, it's an acronym you can uh, rem remember well was our idea. So the idea is um, you create a filter that is index enabled, that enables index access. So if you have a distance function which can be well supported by an index structure, then the filter should be complete. We do not want to have false dismissals. So any one of the exact results must be contained in the candidate set, otherwise it's lost since the refinement step does not produce new objects, but just uh, refines some um, uh, candidates. So if you lost one object in the filter, then it's away. Uh, so the filter needs to be complete, complete needs to be uh, efficiently computed, and selectivity means uh, we want to have a small candidate set um, at all. <coughs> Yeah, and the, the question now is, and if you have a, a, a complex distance function, so this is just an, an, an example for that, it's the earth movers distance we have discussed above, um, then it's, um, the question is how to come to a, such a filter. So um, I, I think many of you may have different distance functions and um, may, <coughs> uh, may be interested in finding any filter. Um, and so there are different ways, um, it's not indicated very well on this um, slide here. Um, there are geometric ways to think of how um, uh, approximating uh, complex distance functions or uh, there might be dimensionality reduction. In this case, we applied some constraint relaxation um, where we, we use this cross-spin similarity, which is indicated here in this diagram, but we 
we cut it in slice into slices, either horizontally or vertically. That, that's a symmetric problem. Um, and so we have an independent minimization per line, which is just an approximation of the Earth mover's distance, not the exact um, distance. But this approximation can be put into an index structure, can be supported by R trees, for example, which is not the case for the EMD. It's complete, so none of the um, of the um, uh, results is oh, sorry, none of the results is um, is missing from the um, from the filter set, and it's much more efficient. So it it looks the same formula here. It's it's only on the last constraint set we have uh, not no longer an equal sign but an, an inequality. But uh, this um, allows to distribute uh, the minimum operator over the sum, so that's uh, much more efficient um, to compute, and then there are certain indexing structures. And it's quite selective, um, which is a good observation. <coughs> yeah, um, these are results, uh, scalability with respect to the database size. That was only a small database, up to 200,000 um, objects for different uh, competing um, um, filters and um, we have the selectivity here so how many candidates are produced out of the database and the response time in seconds um, and we have uh, also scalability results for, uh, with respect to the dimensionality <coughs> so it's up to 64 dimensions um, which are considered in the data um, in the index in the database and also in the index um, and um, we have the uh, response time and selectivity again as before. So that was more or less state of the art uh, and, and to demonstrate how database people think of um, information retrieval and multimedia information retrieval. So that's the technical point, how to, to get things running on this technical layer to get it scalable uh, to large data sets. But what is more interesting here <coughs> are um, first these new interaction models. So what is changing in, in, in the world of multimedia databases? And it's, of course, it's the change of technology. So we have um, storage. It gets cheaper and cheaper. You get more and more storage space. But um, the, the more important thing, in my opinion, is we have a change of use. So, so Alex demanded the new paradigms for accessing data uh, from a user point of view, and it's a topic we'll see in the, in the afternoon as well. Um, and a few things um, that, that change um, this, this interaction uh, with the database and which produce new requirements and new demands for, for the technical solutions um, include, for example, incremental search. I so will uh, discuss this here. Incremental search, relevance feedback, and um, anytime search, which means incremental retrieval is, for example, <coughs> in, in the early times of... Um, of query processing, we had range queries uh, where we say we have a sample object as a query object and we define a range. Uh, we want to have all the objects which are um, not far away than some certain radius, some certain epsilon. And it turned out, we will see that on the next uh, slide where we have the nearest neighbors and uh, up to the incremental retrieval. I come back to this one immediately. So it turns out um, if we have these... Um, Oh, it's again the mouse. Um, this specification, we want to have all the objects where the distance to the query object is, uh, does not exceed the epsilon parameter. 
then the big question is how to choose this epsilon, how to specify that. And if you are not very familiar with the database or nor with the um, distance function, you might specify an epsilon of, say, one, and it might be too small compared to the distances in the database, and you get no result. And you have to refine that until you see a first result. So that's very boring. Or the other way is, is um, as boring as well. You start again with an epsilon of, say, one, but all the distances are in the range of, of uh, uh, 0 0.001 or something like that. And you get um, many, many results or even the entire database. So the <coughs> idea was to to switch from range queries to K and N queries and um, um, where you have to specify how many objects you want to see and it's um, uh, still uh, not um, uh, sufficient uh, since if among the first four or, or 12 or um, maybe 20 entries um, you, you do not find what you are looking for, then you have to start a new or you go to the next step, incremental search, uh, which is the give me more model. So that's... Um, what we we see in the um, search engines, you you click, you want to see the next results and the next results, and which have to be um, supported by the database. The next step, uh, the next um, topic is the relevance feedback, which has a model quite um, a long time uh, where we give weights to individual dimensions, and there is an interesting model that um, also considers this cross bin. Across, um, say, across um, um, feature um, uh, relationships or correlations, and uh, <coughs> which may be extended to ground distances. And um, so, uh, for example, the mind reader system uh, proposed some 10 years ago by uh, Christos Felutsas and and uh, um, 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 PhD student of him. Um, considers these covariances, so this relationship, which is in some sense similar to the latent semantic indexing, where we also do, um, 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 uh, we means not, not just our group, but what's, it's out there, is a principal component analysis of the data. So that's done for the, for the feedback, um, for the relevance feedback uh, results. And um, so I was asked not to run there, uh, but to use the mouse and... Um, it's, it's, it goes away every um, few seconds, so it's um, a little difficult. But I'm not allowed to go there to use the microphone and the, the webcast. Okay, <laughs> I tried. Um, so these cross-spin similarities are regarded, and um, there's a covariance matrix. This is a model that's still around, but um, what is, um, in our opinion, more interesting as a, as a direction is to introduce history. Um, so it, uh, relevance feedback by itself in, uh, uses history. So you have a query result, and then you say this and that, and, and um, those few images or results are relevant to what I have in mind, to what I want to retrieve from the database, and the others are not. And so you go to the next iteration, maybe two times, maybe three times, but not four times, so it tends um, to get boring then. Um, <coughs> um, but what is not in the history involved is the, um, um, the, the formal, uh, formalization of, of the distance function. So that's one idea to, to go into the um, uh, considering the uh, formal feedback influence 
And another idea is to introduce foresight. So when you start with a system and um, with a relevance feedback system, then you still need an, a starting point, as an image as, as your first query, and then you can proceed to an area you are really interested in. So um, <coughs> um, what you can observe is that um, um, uh, this uh, uh, relevance um, ellipsoid um, proceeds very slowly to a certain point you want to reach um, and if we, um, you, you come up with a two-phase model where the first um, phase approaches fast to the relevant area and then uh, in a second phase um, the similarity model is adjusted locally at the destination area um, that uh, might help to, um, to, to, to come in a quicker way to what you actually want to have. So I want to come back later to this point that we have to have a starting point for our queries. This is the, the old query model, and it's overcome by the, by the data mining. But in between, I have um, a few technical things, so it's also um, a good idea to, uh, to apply these relevance feedback uh, things um, to other complex distance functions like the earth movers distance uh, from before. And um, a topic... <coughs> Yeah, I think I come back to, to any time mining at the at the end of um, of the talk in the context of data mining. So um, data mining now means um, in comparison to multimedia information retrieval, the information retrieval world is, as I just said, driven by queries. So we have a, a query by example model in the sense you give some sample objects to the system and you say, I want to see something similar, maybe for... Um, um, licensing reasons you're, you're, you have um, you want to know who cites you or who references your work or who uses the work without referencing it or um, whatever um, you use uh, copyrighted material without referencing something so you have a, a point where we start from an, an image where we are interested are there similar objects uh, out there in the, in the archive or in the internet or wherever and um, what people think about are these adaptable models for content-based similarity. Adaptable means you have these matrices, for example, to bring in your own ideas of similarity, and you do that incremental and, and uh, with relevance feedback or other types of feedback um, around um, in the information retrieval world. Um, but it's still... Um, it's still related to a certain query. And this is a new quality which comes in with the data mining idea. We do not have um, query objects any longer. So the question is, if I have a big set of data and I do not know what to ask there, then uh, a retrieval system asks me to submit any query object. But it's not here which object to submit as a query object. Um, so one idea could be we just browse the database. But we, that needs intelligent um, browsing mechanisms, and this is a step into what data mining means. So we, we do not start with a certain query, but we start with the entire database, and um, the idea is um, how to find areas of similar objects or are there groups of similar objects um, in there. And... Um, on a more abstract, level, more abstract level, we can call it, um, we want to reveal patterns which are hidden in, in the data or in vast amounts of data. You can not find them by just looking at um, 
at them in a, in a sense of, um, of browsing through the data. And patterns might be, might be irregularities or irregularities in typical mining tasks are clustering, for example. So like um, image segmentation, which um, um, pixels have a similar color, similar uh, contribute to, to the same uh, texture, things like that. So it's a clustering of the, of the data. Are there some um, areas, some objects um, in the data <coughs> which are very similar or which deviate from the others? Um, other mining tasks are association rule mining, aggregation of data, generalization of data. So in the multimedia world, you know that um, that um, um, video summarization is a, is a big problem that is in some sense related to this um, multimedia data mining um, task. So subspace class, it's just three um, questions I want to come up with, uh, which are um, more or less new or uh, which are investigated also in the future in, in um, different groups over the world. The first one is subspace clustering. So that is a, not a very high-dimensional space, so that is a, from a river quality um, um, project from hydrologists. Um, they have um, uh, the, the, the quality of, of the rivers, and they want to see are there similar um, structures in, in different parts. <coughs> okay, thanks. Yeah. And um, so the first thing is just apply some clustering approach. There are different available in certain tools, uh, data mining tools, um, and you will see there are no clusters. Uh, despite you know as an expert, so the hydrologists know there are some similar um, clusters around there. So um, the observation is um, that the cluster structures are hidden by noisy dimensions. So you have, it's, it's, um, in that example, it was only 19 dimensions. Maybe you have hundreds of dimensions in gene expression, um, um, data, or, or other high-dimensional applications. And you don't find the clusters since the, the clusters are hidden, for example, in five or 12 dimensions and all the other 50 dimensions um, um, <coughs> hide the, the cluster so they contribute noise and the clustering algorithms do not reveal that. So what is uh, the task is to separate the relevant and the irrelevant dimensions, um, which is done by dimensionality reduction, um, so the um, um, principal components analysis, uh, for example. Uh, but these um, techniques apply to, to all the dimensions over the entire space. So these are global uh, techniques. Uh, but what is required here and what needs to be developed is um, that you, you do that locally. So in, in different, for different clusters, different dimensions can apply to form uh, these clusters. Um, <clears throat> so the first thing is to separate the irrelevant dimensions from the relevant ones locally in the data space uh, to identify the, the substantial dimensions and to separate them from the accidental um, dimensions here and then to identify clusters and uh, with them their respective subspaces. <clears throat> Outlier detection is another thing which is a new challenge um, in particular with respect to, this, to the subspace cluster um, thing. So um, by definition, clusters are dense areas where many objects uh, reside in the same um, area of the data space and outliers are in some sense singularities. And so you can say outliers is no are noise then you discard them, or you say outliers are the objects of interest. For example, if you have um, fraud detection in a credit card, 
company you are interested in unusual things which are hopefully not uh, clusters um, as there are many occurrences but it's only a single occurrence there a single occurrence at another point in the feature space um, and outlier detection is in, in this sense a complementary task to clustering and how to define outliers with respect to subspace clusters so nearly any object um, belongs to any subspace cluster and uh, we have a high redundancy of clusters um, there and so um, research um, goes also in this direction in, in different um, places. And now the last um, example here is the stream aggregation and generalization that's uh, from an um, a firefighter scenario or might be an uh, um, other emergency scenario or might be um, you have a lot of sensors um, in, in the nursery um, context uh, which um, uh, Alex has uh, sketched in, in his talk. Um, so we have a lot of sensors from the individual firefighters for example or from some, some sensors in the building and there is um, uh, uh, the, the emergency manager who, who knows there are five people over there and, and five people in the other direction. There's a person inside and, and where to, to put the attention. And so there's a lot of information from all the sensors and, and it's a good thing to, to, to distinguish relevant from irrelevant uh, information and you have some limitations of so the battery power of the, of the mobile uh, devices, the bandwidth and, and um, finally the, the attention of the monitoring uh, persons. So that's an, uh, a thing where multimedia, multi-sensor data um, may include um, GPS information, video information, um, medical information, um, have to be aggregated, generalized, um, separated, classified. So there's a lot of, of problems in, in, in such a scenario which gives um, a lot of um, of uh, new demands uh, for, for s new solutions um, here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I think I, I deferred this any time, but um, that's maybe for the break. <laughs> um, um, uh, to conclude, um, I recalled content-based similarity search to, to come to the points here that we need new interaction models or new support for interaction models since the use of, of data um, basis uh, changes um, and um, finally I discussed that um, um, we have new uh, we have data mining as a new task for databases but also new tasks in the world of data mining inspired by these changes of data, changes of uses um, in the multimedia world yeah, thanks for your attention <coughs> questions for the uh, subspace clustering part, uh, you explained the really importance of that to look at data, remove noise dimensions. So what sort of technology, so what sort of method, because we know that there are loads of uh, like dimensionality reduction sort of techniques there. So in your case, uh, yeah, what yeah. kind of approach are you using? Okay. Um, so the question is what is different to, to the existing uh, dimensionality reduction techniques? That's yeah, yeah. We, we have a sort of non-linear, like from basic case uh, principle component analysis, then to a lot of non-linear. 
Yeah. <coughs> yeah. So if you apply these, these well-known dimensionality reduction techniques, um, principal component analysis is based on, a, on an analysis of the data. Other techniques are based on assumptions of the data, maybe Fourier analysis or wavelet um, transformation. They do not look at the data in advance, but they just follow a certain model. Principal component analysis analyzes, analyzes the data. But they all share the, the limitation that they look at the entire data base, so at all the data at the same time, and they, they apply the same um, projection um, to all the data. There are some, uh, some um, um, local projection techniques around, so and I know this, um, um, how is it called, multiple? Uh, like LPP, uh, locality preserving projection, yeah, which look, is actually not look at the, the, the whole sort of data set. Yeah, that's, incremental. that's most similar to what, uh, what, what um, uh, subspace clustering means. So you look at, at different um, 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 areas in, in, the, in the data space and you apply different projections. Um, when the clustering comes in, then you do not first decide about the projection, but you look at the data and other are, are the data um, objects dense in, in, in which um, um, dimensions or which subspaces are they dense? And, and so you might approach um, a bottom up from individual dimensions um, to come to, to higher dimensional subspaces, or you might discard in a uh, top down way. So th these local locality preserving approaches are quite um, similar to that. Um, so th that's the, the big differences to the, to the quite common technique is that you, you look at the locality. And, and to combine that with, with density-based clustering um, is, is, is quite a new thing, uh, which is considered in, in several groups. Um. All right. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Any more questions? Okay. Let's uh, thank Thomas again. <coughs> yeah.